Hello, and welcome to the September episode of the Network 5 Emergency Medicine Journal Club podcast. This month, we have a special episode, which comes at a time when our health system is facing one of its gravest challenges in recent memory. As you may have guessed, we're talking about COVID-19, and we have with us a number of guest experts who have generously shared their time despite working in one of the epicenters of the current Delta outbreak in New South Wales. This month, we've decided to try something new. Given how much we all like to talk, we have decided to break up the episode into three parts to make it more digestible, with each part focused on a different aspect of COVID-19. Part one is going to be about proning. Part two is about vaccine-induced thrombosis and the public health effort. And part three will be about anti-COVID therapies. We're still going to have all of the usual segments and we would love to hear your feedback about the change. Joining us for part one and staying throughout the episode, we have Dr. George Zhao, Intensive Care Specialist at Westmead Hospital, and Dr. James Tadros, Emergency Medicine Specialist at Nepean Hospital. Caroline is going to get us started with a paper entitled Awake Prone Positioning in Patients with Hypoxemic Respiratory Failure Due to COVID-19, the Proflow Multicenter Randomized Clinical Trial by Rosen et al. It was published in the Journal of Critical Care in June 2021. Caroline? Thanks, Shreyas. So I'll jump straight into this paper, and then hopefully we can have more of a general discussion about proning as a treatment for COVID-19 afterwards. So this study was a prospective, multi-center, open-label, parallel-arm, randomized clinical superiority trial, which was conducted in Sweden between October 2020 and February 2021. And it sought to determine the impact of implementing a protocol for awake-prone positioning on the rates of endotracheal intubation in COVID-19 patients with hypoxemic respiratory failure. Although there have been papers published previously commenting on the use of awake-prone positioning in both ARDS and COVID-19 specifically, This was the first randomized clinical trial to explore awake-prone positioning in COVID-19 patients. So this study was conducted at two tertiary teaching hospitals and one county hospital in Sweden between October 2020 and February 2021. Patients could be recruited if they were greater than 18 years old, were COVID positive, and had hypoxic respiratory failure requiring either high-flow nasal oxygen or NIV, and a PF ratio of less than 200 millimeters of mercury. These patients were randomized via a centralized web-based system with a ratio of one to one and a block size of eight. In the control group, awake-prone positioning was not encouraged, but could be utilized as per the discretion of the treating physician. In the prone group, there was a prescribed protocol of prone or semi-prone positioning for 16 hours of the day, with semi-recumbent or lateral positioning in between proning rather than lying on their back. The primary outcome for this study was intubation within 30 days after enrolment. The secondary outcomes included duration of awake-prone positioning, the use of NIV and time to NIV for those patients on high-flow nasal oxygen, requirement for vasopressors, inotropes or continuous renal replacement therapy, hospital and ICU length of stay, 30-day mortality and adverse events. Based on previous studies and intubation rates, The organizers determined that 240 patients would be required to detect a 20% decrease in intubation. 
And so the results of this study, in the allotted time period between October and February, 1,290 patients with confirmed COVID-19 were admitted to the three hospitals participating. Of these, 141 were screened, with 75 patients being enrolled. With regards to the characteristics of the two randomised groups, the patients appeared to be well balanced between these two groups, although 86% of those in the prone group were on high flow nasal oxygen initially, compared with 74% in the control group, and 82% were male in the control group, compared with 64% in the prone group. Due to rapidly declining case numbers in Sweden in January, a decision was made to perform the interim analysis early after the enrolment of the 75 patients that I've just described. This interim analysis revealed that 13 or 33% in the control group and 12 or 33% again in the prone group were intubated. Median prone duration was 3.4 hours per day in the control group and 9 hours per day in the prone group. And in the prone group, only five patients achieved greater than 16 hours of proning in the first day of the protocol, and only two patients had a mean duration of awake prone positioning of more than 16 hours per day for the duration of the protocol. So it seems like this was quite a difficult protocol to stick to for those patients. There was no significant differences between groups with regards to the secondary outcomes I described earlier. Interestingly, nine patients in the control group had pressure sores compared with only two patients in the prone group. Even when performing an as-treated analysis, comparing patients with less than three hours of awake prone positioning per day with those with more than nine hours of awake prone positioning per day, there was no significant difference in the proportion of patients requiring intubation. Based on these results, the trial was terminated early due to an assessment of futility. Amazing. Thank you, Caroline. I thought that the methodology of the study was a little bit dicey at a few points. Take us through what your thoughts on that were. So, I mean, in terms of the limitations for this paper, there was a very limited sample size due to the early cessation of the trial, which I think really limits the statistical power with which we can really interpret any of the results. I guess partly this may have been due to trying to conduct a study in the middle of a pandemic with an overwhelmed system, potentially depleted resources. So they only screened 141 of the 1,290 patients that were admitted to hospital. I think it's interesting that there were more ventilator-free days in the prone group and more days free from NIV and high flow nasal oxygen in those not intubated in the prone group. These results weren't statistically significant. So I do wonder if there was a much larger sample size, um, whether this would have actually yielded some results. In terms of other parts of the methodology, it wasn't blinded, of course, due to the nature of the intervention. So I don't think that's something that could have changed, but obviously that leads to the potential for bias. And I guess also with awake prone positioning potentially becoming a standard of care anyway, this was the second wave of the pandemic in Sweden when this study was conducted. And, you know, we can see that in the control group, there were patients being proned, whether that attenuated the difference between the two groups potentially a little bit was another thought that I had. And finally, I think it was interesting that there were no predefined criteria for intubation. And again, I wonder whether, you know, they, they were very set in prescribing 16 hours of awake prone positioning, but I wonder if they had been a little bit more specific about what prompted intubation, perhaps that would also remove an element of bias from study results. Yeah, thanks for that. It was a good summary. Dr. Zhao, prone positioning has rapidly become a standard of care when it comes to management of 
COVID-19 patients. Can you just briefly take us through why prone positioning is thought to be helpful in these patients? We've been using prone positioning for a while and probably more so since the landmark Perceiver paper, which was about 2013, if I remember correctly. And it's been used in severe respiratory failure as a rescue technique to improve mainly oxygenation. Caveats to this are obviously difficulty doing the procedure on intubated patients with lines and tubes possibly falling out. The paper in 2013 had about a 15% improvement in mortality, and that was done in majority French hospitals. And since then, we've tried to sort of use it in various different hypoxic respiratory failure diseases. We haven't tried awake proning for many diseases, though, because we haven't seen a disease such as this where patients are so profoundly hypoxic before they get intubated and where we've found intubation to actually be almost a disservice to patients in this disease compared to others where we would have much lower thresholds for intubation. So in terms of the benefits of it, there are probably a couple of main benefits, but some which also apply more to this patient group for COVID. So one of the main benefits is homogenization of pressures across the lungs. So in a lung upright or in a supine lung, then the pleural pressures or the transpulmonary pressures across the lung are much higher in the bases and the dependent areas because of gravity compared to the apical areas. And by flipping someone upside down, then we can equalize these pressures and have less lung injury because now we don't have healthy lung, which we are destroying with ventilation or with disease, and we have less pressures on the dependent lung because they're upside down. So we can normalize these pressures across the lung. That's the first thing. The second thing is for improvement of ventilation perfusion mismatch. So when the patients are in a supine position, the dependent areas receive the bulk of the perfusion because they also have bulk of the dependent areas. And interestingly enough, when we've looked at patients in ARDS, by turning them upside down in a prone position, the blood flow to the different areas of the lungs don't change too much. So what that means is if we initially have increased blood flow to the dependent areas, and then we turn them upside down, then that increased blood flow will still be there for the areas which were initially dependent, but now are at the top and are receiving better ventilation and have less pleural pressures. So by distributing the perfusion better, then possibly we're getting better oxygenation. So that improves the mismatch that occurs when patients are supine. So they're probably the two main things for prone positioning. There are also other added benefits. Obviously the heart is mainly anterior. So in a patient that's supine, the heart can press onto lungs and cause more atelectasis and dependent areas. And there is also the diaphragm and the abdominal weight, which for COVID patients might be a significant thing because we're actually seeing a lot of patients who are obese. And by turning them upside down, we're just relieving the pressure onto those dependent areas of lung. So there's multiple benefits there. In terms of how patients have been tolerating this. For people who normally sleep on the front, it's fine, but it's actually quite uncomfortable for people who don't normally sleep on the front. And especially if they are obese or they're pregnant, it's particularly difficult. So when this trial is saying 16 hours, 
for someone who's intubated, that's much easier. But for someone who's awake, if you consider that someone sleeps eight, 10 hours a day, that's your whole time spent upside down. That's pretty unrealistic. So, you know, WHO recommends something like three or four hours. And that's probably more realistic because people still need to eat and sort of have some daylight time um, compared to 16 hours, which was, I think, too unrealistic for this study. That was definitely one of my reflections on reading it. Suddenly in ICU, I'm very pleased if we can get someone proning for, you know, more than an hour at a time. Usually, usually they tend to find it very hard to tolerate as, as far as I've observed. I guess flowing on from that, it seems that most of the data or most of the evidence that we have in regards to proning has been in the intubated patient, as you alluded to. Um, I was wondering how this paper aligns with the wider literature around awake proning. Some of you are probably aware at the end of August, there was a Lancet paper produced uh, that was a large meta trial across multiple countries. I think it was like USA, Canada, Mexico, some others I can't remember. And this is probably the paper that we have the most evidence for awake proning. So treatment failure, which was defined as either intubation or mortality at 30 days was decreased by about 5% in the prone group, which is not a lot, to be honest. If you look at the paper that we're analyzing, you know, they've targeted 20%, which is way too optimistic, I think, for the statistical power analysis and you know, they probably need two or 3,000 patients to detect what I think is probably about a 5 to 10% intubation rate difference if we look at this disease process. So, yeah, the Lancet paper is a meta-trial and I think had just over 1,000 patients, um, but about a 5% difference. And a number needed to treat of about 14 to 15 for intubation with awake proning. So that's relatively good impetus to keep doing it. I guess the other way to look at this with any other intervention we do in medicine is what the downside to this is. And for awake proning, there's almost no downside to awake proning patients. It is a little bit uncomfortable and they can just turn around again. For intubated patients, it's a bit more difficult because you have lines, gastric feeds come back up, vomiting, pressure area care. That's all a problem. But for awake patients, there's zero downside. So I think, you know, if there's even any hint of benefit, then it's worth doing. Now, the other thing is we've all seen patients' oxygen saturations improve when they're prone. Whether that actually translates to something meaningful in terms of outcomes is always difficult, just as with everything else in medicine. It's hard to know what the treatment you're doing at the bedside is actually translating to something that's meaningful in the long term. But definitely we can see a stark difference at the bedside. So I think that's good enough reason to continue doing it. I don't think there's going to be, to be honest, a large RCT that we can do for this because it's now standard of care and it's so easy to do. Yeah, thank you. That makes sense. You mentioned before that intubation to an extent, feels like a disservice to these patients. Prior to the COVID pandemic, certainly from my limited awareness, uh, it seemed that for severe hypoxic respiratory failure, early intubation was deemed optimal. Why is it that early intubation is now not desirable or leads to worse outcomes? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. We have always traditionally for hypoxic respiratory failure patients intubated them early. And definitely for patients that have 
been looked at who have had CPAP or NIV, the treatment outcomes were worse possibly because of delayed intubation and protecting the lungs from that disease. When we intubate patients, we put them on lung protective strategies and essentially minimize further trauma to their already diseased lungs. And the problem with COVID is that the ventilation techniques that we use are probably going to cause some sort of trauma to healthy lung because the COVID pneumonitis is essentially a mishmash of some diseased lungs, but a lot of areas of healthy lung as well. And causing barotrauma or volutrauma to those areas is definitely possible. If we then combine that with very high pressure ventilation because they are very hypoxic, then that can lead to worse outcomes. I think across the world, the other thing about the poor outcomes in intubated patients is that a lot of health services were overwhelmed. And when you don't have an intensive care doctor meticulously looking at the patient and making sure that they're not getting dangerous ventilation or any of the supportive care like you know nutrition, pressure areas, DVT prophylaxis, and lines, sepsis. When all of that stuff is overlooked, then ICU actually then becomes a harmful therapy. You know, even in the last 10, 20 years, there have been no real major advances in intensive care aside from a few things, yet our outcomes in intensive care have improved quite significantly. And that's actually because of good supportive care. And if we're not able to do this with, you know, an overwhelmed ICU with these patients, then that's where the mortality is going to happen. So if these patients don't need intubation to begin with, then it feels like a bit of a disservice to do it to them. And we don't know still what the trigger for intubation is. So, I mean, this paper that was one of the problems with this paper, you know, when you intubate. And even in the Lancet trial, they did publish some suggestions for intubation, but it's always going to be different center by center. And we are probably progressively more happy with patients being hypoxic to 90%, even to 85% if they're not in respiratory distress. And I think, you know, putting these patients on a ventilator is possibly asking for barotrauma for other problems with supportive care and maybe worse outcomes. Ventilation obviously requires sedation as well. So there's a problem of deconditioning, weakness, and delirium, and then getting patients off all of these medications afterwards. So it's not a benign procedure, putting someone on a ventilator, and that can really tip them over the edge sometimes. Thank you. That was a really good explanation. James and Pramod, obviously both working in ED at the moment. I was just wondering about the practicality of implementing awake proning in the ED. What have your experiences been? Has it been something that has been easily doable? Have there been challenges? How do we manage compliance when we try and encourage people to do this? A lot of the time there are all these treatments out there, but working in an emergency department, you learn what's practical and what's not. And I think proning can be at times, but also I think as George alluded to, it can have its limitations. So I think it's a lot easier definitely than proning an intubated patient because having been involved in proning intubated patients in the past, it's very labor intensive while this is largely patient driven. But there have been even just sort of little challenges. I guess there in Western Sydney, we have um, some more well-nourished citizens and proning them onto their abdomen or albeit quite a large abdomen, can actually be almost impossible. And so we have failed to prone many people, but a lot of them are actually happy sitting up or sitting forward in a chair. 
And I've found that that achieves some of the same effects, but I doubt there's any literature to suggest that actually works. And I don't think anyone's done an RCT or anything to that effect. But just along those lines, simple limitations like finding enough pillows and people not being familiar with the procedure. So people trying to prone, people say, they've, oh, they failed proning, but trying to do it with one pillow. And it's really difficult to prone someone who doesn't usually sleep on their front with only one pillow to put their head on because they might have, you know, even just a little girth will prevent that. So a pillow under the chest, I feel often does a trick, but finding that in an already very full emergency department is a simple but very limiting dysfunction. You can see these real monitor-orientated outcomes, which for so long have been maligned in the literature because they don't necessarily translate to what we would deem as patient-orientated outcomes. Because obviously assessing longitudinal morbidity and mortality in a disease that's actively progressing, actively mutating and causing such a strain on the health system is, is essentially impossible, I think, in, in a meaningful time frame. What is uh, really difficult is some of those real basic pragmatic stuff I think as someone who monitors and looks after an entire department when you're on shift as an admitting officer or, or as a senior ED physician, it's a bit disconcerting thinking that even at the best of times when it's really busy, we find it difficult to monitor and appropriately assess some of our more unwell patients purely because of demand and a lack of appropriate treatment spaces. You extrapolate that to an already strained health system and then extrapolate that to unfamiliar nursing techniques, patients who don't necessarily face enclosed doors. You know, where we can, we try and isolate these patients in single rooms. So there's no direct line of sight to the medical bay. Add to that the fact that the patient's then on their face. So even through the small window that's at the door, the nursing staff can't fully appreciate at a single glance how well or unwell the patient appears. So there's a lot of these little things that make it difficult. It's also really difficult to appreciate when Someone from my staff tells me that a patient has failed prone ventilation. Oftentimes, I think more than 90% of the time, that's because it was just poor technique and no one really sat there and talked through the process with the patient. I approach it when I do it now as though I'm starting a new patient on NIV. It's a similar, I think, activity for me. It often involves two staff sitting with the patient, supporting them through the process, talking through them, because it's very anxiety-inducing. These patients are already diaphoretic, already very short of breath in their most comfortable tripoding upright position to then try and convince them to move can sometimes be quite problematic. And so I think those small pragmatic things can increase the efficacy of the intervention significantly. I think just along those lines, it's actually quite interesting to go back to the study and have a look at why they sort of stopped. And one of the reasons they stopped was they started to become overwhelmed with patients and the staff that were running the study basically got pulled into clinical duties. But I would argue that this sort of intervention that can be done without a huge amount of labor from the staff, even with mild improvements is most useful, I think, when your health system is overwhelmed. And just going back to the fact that, if you remember back to March last year, we used to just intubate these patients on arrival, but that's obviously proved to not be uh, beneficial for them. But it's also allowed us to do more for more patients because they don't become so labor intensive. So I'd argue that this is an intervention that is even more useful when you've got to do a lot for a lot of patients. Thanks for that. That makes a lot of sense and really gives us an insight into what the department is sort of functionally dealing with at the moment in terms of load. I just wonder, in patients with other respiratory comorbidities, things like COPD or heart failure, in whom we'd traditionally be aiming to provide you know, a seated upright position to optimize their ventilation. I was wondering what the role of prone positioning is in these patients who 
might have elements of both COVID pneumonitis and obstructive disease or COVID pneumonitis and fluid overload or, or that sort of a combination. It really depends on how well they tolerate things. You know, it's all well and good to say, even just to put the patient on CPAP, but as we all know, some of them will get claustrophobic and it just won't work, which is why high flow has become really useful because, you know, they can continue to eat and, and feel like they're open to space. I don't actually know definitely answer the question. I'm not sure if anyone really does definitely. But again, just going back to their clinical condition, whether you can help relieve that a little bit. I have had situations similar to what you're describing where I've at least initially proned them but put the bed completely tilted sort of head up. And I've found that that's at least helped the initial process. But like I said, a lot of patients just still especially in that clinical condition, won't tolerate it. And a lot of what you do is a negotiation. And like Pramod alluded to, a lot of it's communication as well, because you can say all these things. And like the study demonstrated, you can say that you're going to prone them for 16 hours a day, but that's easier said than done. And you need to be able to communicate with the patient and convince the patient to accept that intervention. Otherwise, if they're not compliant with it, you might as well do nothing. The patient also has acute pulmonary edema and... COVID, then I think you'd just treat them for acute pulmonary edema. If they come in and they have COVID on the background of pre-existing lung disease or pre-existing, you know, a bit of fluid overload from renal failure or LV failure, then I think you'd try and treat whatever's the predominant disease. So, you know, if it's COVID on the background of chronic lung disease, then I think you'd still prone them. But if there's another acute process, I think you'd treat that. So, you know, if it's exacerbation of COPD, put them on NIV. If it's APO, put them on CPAP. My main questions were around more conceptually with emerging data and the application of the physiology. How early on were you considering doing the prone ventilation? I mean, it's just interesting because during the first wave, it wasn't something that we saw terribly much of, at least in the ED. I mean, maybe that was because the system wasn't quite so strained and we weren't seeing the filter down effects of prolonged length of stays for these patients in ED and therefore having to do more and more sort of secondary and tertiary level oxygenation and ventilation strategies. But was this a thought that was there that awake prone ventilation might be something of a novel intervention in this particular disease process uh, earlier on during the first and second waves? Um, particularly if you were talking to your colleagues over in Melbourne who had a much more traumatic second wave than we did here in Sydney. And sort of why are we seeing it being so much more popular now? It's really interesting for me just because the theoretical advantages are so clear and, and it's, I think, almost kind of satisfying to see that to be able to be translated into clinical practice. It's mainly been an evolution of what we know about treatment for this disease and also how it's affected the health system. So if we look back at our first wave, we didn't have nearly as many patients as the overseas outbreaks. And I mean, the maximum we had in ICU at Westmead was about 12 patients at once. And that's compared to UK American units overflowing with patients. At that time, we were getting reports from up to about 80% mortality on ventilators from America, from New York. And even the UK was 50 to 60% um, on average from their monthly reports. So we were looking at quite significant mortality data on ventilated patients. And 
because we kind of had space to move and we didn't have as many patients, we had the luxury of treating them as we would any other hypoxic respiratory failure patient. And we only had one death in our first wave of ventilated patients. And that, you know, is a stark difference to what we're seeing overseas. So, you know, from that point of view, we were pretty happy that what we were doing wasn't causing too much harm. And we had enough resources to back that up as well. So to make sure that patients would get rehab, they had the supportive care and not miss anything in ICU. So that's probably the first wave. After the first wave, the Australia was definitely not the first place to, to awake proning. It came out of the UK and America simply because they had so many patients. And that seemed to help with, like you said, the oxygenation and prevention of then going on to ventilation. So Melbourne did adopt this. Speaking to some people from the Alfred, they tried to use that as well. And I think, you know, it's such a simple intervention that it was quite attractive to everyone to do. I guess that comes to our wave now. And because we have so many patients, there is only limited space in intensive care and having such an easy intervention that seems like there's going to be some benefit is very attractive. Now, the actual benefit is probably not as great as we think it is. So, you know, the Lancet trial was only 5% difference and very close to, you know, the fragility index is not that large for that trial. So I think, you know, don't know what the exact number is, whether these patients are getting a better outcome, but it's definitely very easy to do. So, you know, in terms of why we didn't think of it earlier, I think probably because we were seeing such good results with our ventilator patients and we weren't really having as bad mortality as, as they were having overseas. So it didn't seem to be a pressing need. But I think now that we're facing the same pressures as overseas with health service resources and nursing resources, then it's definitely something that, you know, we throw the kitchen sink at. Thanks for that. It makes it a lot clearer. It's just very nice to see the pragmatism sort of pivot so neatly into clinical practice. Obviously, in that paper, pregnancy was an exclusion, but it's obviously a risk for severe disease. There is no real barrier to proning a pregnant patient other than the practicality of, you know, having lots and lots of pillows and making sure that you, you don't put any pressure yeah. on the cable aspects, right? Yeah. So the main barrier is having 10 pillows. Like you could argue that the hemodynamics are possibly better when they're prone. It's quite uncomfortable for pregnant patients to do that as well. So that's, that's the other mm. thing. One of the possibilities is to just get a mattress and cut a hole in the middle. Um, <laughs> they could just go into that. Um, that would be possible. Uh, but yeah, I think log logistically it's just a little bit difficult. If you have a pregnant patient and you want to intubate them and they're prone, then you have to flip them over again and you don't want them to arrest. Like I think you really don't want to get into that scenario with a pregnant patient. So you're better off when we have the resources like to intubate earlier than to muck around burning them on CPAP or high flow. Is that still a risk with other patients that are prone that when you flip them, they then really decompensate quickly? I think there's always a risk when they're upside down, but if they're pregnant, they're just harder to get back onto their, like you need more people to move them, right? Any severe hypoxia, you've got two people to deal with rather than one. So you really, you can't afford them to have, you know, five, 10 minutes of severe hypoxia. What about yeah. partial prone? We say side to side lateral if they can't prone, 
anything is better than on the back, essentially. Usually, they're better on the right side rather than the left because they've got more lung on the right. But side to side is definitely something we advocate for patients. Even when they're intubated, we do side to side lateral rotations rather than supine, which is essentially the worst position ever. Fantastic. Thank you so much, everyone. Caroline, we might wrap up. Do you want to just give us three take-home points for our listeners? I guess just based off that discussion, I'd say some good take-home points would be that prone positioning is an accepted treatment regimen for patients with hypoxic respiratory failure and COVID-19, both for awake and ventilated patients, and that there is some evidence to show a modest benefit of this practice. I guess it's also important to consider some of the practical difficulties that can arise even from something as simple as proning and definitely good to think about how well a patient may be able to tolerate it, what their body habitus might be and how this translates into the ED setting. Amazing. Thank you so much. So next up, we've got our first interlude for this episode. Dr. Zhao has actually spent some time overseas in Lebanon as part of the COVID response there, and he's going to give us some reflections of his experience. So at the end of last year, for three months, I joined a WHO emergency medical team and we did COVID response in Lebanon. The remit of the mission actually was after the massive port bomb blast, which many of you probably have heard on the news. But the casualties from trauma were actually quite quickly treated and dealt with. And the remaining problem was that six hospitals were taken out by the blast and that had massively drained public health resources. So add into that a massive economic crisis, a political crisis, and then COVID patients, it was, uh, it was a recipe for disaster. So I was there with four intensive care nurses and there was a community team that was looking at vaccinations and engagement of the community. There was an infection control nurse and infection control expert. Well, we basically supported about six or seven hospitals across Lebanon. And it's a very different experience to Australia. Resource setting is very different. So equipment issues, medication issues, bed space issues, nursing issues were quite rampant. In such a setting, intensive care is clearly not the optimal place to place patients. There's significant morbidity and mortality with these patients going to intensive care. So we were seeing mortality rates of almost 100% with anyone going to intensive care. But we would run out of medications very quickly. You'd be using you know, the same circuits, the same CPAP masks, et cetera. And this is just not great for the patients. Now, we quickly changed our tactic to try and prevent patients coming in. And this is where you know, prone ventilation helped a lot proning on the ward, aiming for lower saturation targets, and essentially only intubating patients when they were on the cusp of arrest. 
Unfortunately, when you're in a low resource area setting, then you kind of have to change where the thresholds are for critical care, especially knowing that these patients are not going to just be there for a day or two. They're going to be there for seven days or more. That was quite difficult also with the cultural setting where end-of-life treatment, end-of-life care is not openly discussed. And a lot of patients, you know, the severely elderly patients would still be for a trial of everything. So it's, it's difficult. You definitely learn to use what you have quite differently. You also probably have a sense of gratitude for what you have at home as well. So it puts things into perspective, um, our resources and our setting where, you know, we, can, we have so many available ICU beds and the staff and the medication and equipment to support it. So that's definitely where the game changes are. But in terms of highlighted events, I guess, trying to intubate patients with laryngoscopes with no batteries and reusing circuits and oxygen tubes flying into your face and then getting PCRs every week is uh, probably where it's at. But the community definitely very grateful for it. Hopefully we made a bit of a difference, but it's always hard when you're in such a low resource setting and you have such a rampant disease. Thank you so much for that. It's a really powerful statement about, I guess, uh, our own privilege and how lucky we are in this country to have such a well-equipped health system, certainly, you know, much, much though we're facing our own pressures. It's excellent perspective when you compare what we're faced with what some other countries have been going through. So that brings us to the end of part one and huge thanks to George and James and all of our contributors for giving us their time and insights to the discussion. As always, the links to the papers will be in the show notes and we'll include the link to that Lancet paper as well. And please contact us with your feedback at westmeadedjournalclub at gmail.com. Stay tuned for part two, where we'll be talking about vaccination complications and the public health effort.